Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Mike Frank. I'm the director of the Washington, D.C. office for the Hoover Institution, and just honored tonight to be co-hosting this event with Heritage. Work closely with Mike Gonzalez, who you'll hear from in a second on it. I want to thank Kay James, Kim Holmes, Mike, and all the colleagues of his at Heritage for letting us co-host tonight's event. Uh, I have a couple minutes, and I just want to offer up a couple quick thoughts on why we're doing this, why this is so important. Um, Some of you may have read a book uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote recently, Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And um, I thought he had a pretty good, useful uh, intro where he offers a global perspective on the origins of uh, identity politics. And he says, quote, 20th century politics had been organized along a left-right spectrum defined by economic issues, the left wanting more equality, and the right demanding greater freedom. In the second decade of the 21st century, that spectrum appears to be giving way in many respects to one defined by identity. The left has focused less on broad economic equality and more on promoting the interest of a wide variety of groups perceived as being marginalized. The right, meanwhile, is redefining itself as patriots who seek to protect traditional national identity, an identity that is often explicitly explicitly connected to race, ethnicity, or religion. And while material self-interest was and remains important, Fukuyama argues that present events are best explained by motives he calls the politics of resentment, where political leaders have, quote, mobilized followers around the perception that the group's dignity has been affronted, disparaged, or otherwise disregarded. This creates often intense demands of public recognition of the group in question. The modern phenomenon known as identity politics, he argues, extends both to nations as well as groups of citizens within nations and can arise from nationality, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender. Why is this significant? Uh, Fukuyama's answer is both provocative and I think a little bit intimidating. Quote, identity politics thus encompasses a large part of the political struggles of the contemporary world, from democratic revolutions to new social movements, from nationalism to Islamism to the politics on contemporary American university campuses. Now, that's quite a challenge for one panel to resolve, no matter how insightful and erudite they may be. And believe me, I think you'll find out they're both insightful and erudite as they speak tonight. But I think we can all agree that understanding identity politics is an essential endeavor and one I expect we'll all be returning to over and over again in the future. So thank you for letting us be co-hosts, and I want to uh, invite Mike up to the podium. Thanks, Mike. I'm Mike Gonzalez. I'm a senior fellow here at Heritage. I want to welcome you all. I know it's uh, kind of a dreary day to come out, but I want to thank you. Um, uh, first, I want to ask you, remind you to turn off your phones. 
Um, we have, uh, we, because we have cameras here, we have C-SPAN with us. <clears throat> We're going online as well. I have to introduce people. I've always wondered why I, a person that, you know, not, not that famous, nobody sort of, have to introduce really famous people. Um, but for the purpose of the people uh, watching us online and uh, broadcast, I want to welcome, oh, by the way, Peter, Peter Brockowitz made it. He made it from Chicago. He just landed. Uh, so, uh, wow, I thought you were going to be here at 5.30. Well, I wanna, uh, want to welcome Peter Berkowitz from the Hoover Institution, uh, John Fonte from the Hudson Institute, Michael Lind from the University of Texas, Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute, <clears throat> and Andrew Sullivan from New York Magazine. Andrew Sullivan is typical of this dilemma. You know, uh, you could say he's a blogger, but you could also say he invented blogging because he did. Uh, and uh, that thing we, we all do now, he was synonymous with it about 20 years ago. So what Mike and I did was we talked and we brought together the best minds we could think of on this issue of identity politics to discuss not just the nature of the problem, but uh, how to potential solutions to it. A friend of mine told me when he saw the list of speakers that I had, he said, you know, Heather McDonald, Michael Lind, uh, Peter Berkowitz, you know, these people have very strong personalities. How are you and Mike going to control that? And I was like, oh, I'm not going to control them. Um, you know, I, I disagree. I don't think, I don't think Andrew Sullivan's ever read me, but I'm sure he disagrees with much of what I write. I disagree with some of what he writes. I, John Fonte is a good friend and a bit of a mentor. He disagrees with a lot of what I say. So it's not a question of agreement. It's a just different perspectives to this issue of identity politics. Uh, we all, we're all here because we agree that identity politics is a problem and that uh, we, we want a solution, but we approach it from different perspectives. My own solution is to stop the government from coercing all of us into different categories and ever expanding number of racial and ethnic groupings. But now you will hear other perspectives. Uh, we will go alphabetically. It will be uh, Peter, John, Michael, Heather, and Andrew in that order. They will each have about 10 minutes or so. After the finish, we will open to questions from the audience. Uh, after that, we'll have some, uh, I believe we have some wine and hors d'oeuvres out in the foyer uh, uh, at 6.30. Uh, Ms. McDonald has graciously agreed to sign copies of her book in the lobby for about a half hour. And I want you to join me now in welcoming Peter Burke. Peter, you mind going first, or do you want to you catch your breath a little bit? I'll go second. Okay, <laughs> well, welcome John Fonte then. Uh, identity politics has been with us a long time, at least 50 years. I'm not going to discuss Obama and Trump or events that have occurred in this, in this century, <clears throat> uh, but talk about uh, the 20th century <coughs> historical background. Identity politics could be, understand, could be understood as a trinity, a triad of multiculturalism, uh, the diversity project, and critical theory. There's a soft and a hard multiculturalism. The soft is benign, the celebration of ethnic subcultures, you know, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo. It's not really part of identity politics. On the other hand, hard multiculturalism has damaged American society. The multicultural argument uh, runs something along the following lines. The United States should be thought of as a multicultural society in which different cultures, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and women have their own values, histories, and identities, separate from and sometimes in opposition to dominant Anglo, white, male culture. This argument has consequences. In July 1991, New York State 
released its social studies curriculum. It was entitled, One Nation, Many Peoples, A Declaration of Cultural Interdependence. Reference to the American peoples, as opposed to the American people, abound in the National History Standards, put out in 1994-1995. For example, one core standard in the National History Standards declares, quote, Students should understand how big business, heavy industry, and mechanized farming transformed the American peoples in the late 19th century. By inverting the language of American unity, the concept of the peoples of the United States creates a counter-patriotic symbolism that subordinates the unum to the pluribus. This is deliberate rhetorical subversion. Moreover, the National History Standards describe the formation of the United States as a product not of Western civilization, but instead as a convergence of three civilizations, European, West African Islamic, and Amerindian. Three worlds meet. That was the formation. This historically inaccurate view is dominant today. It's incorporated into the new AP history course that just came out. Second, diversity. There are two ways of looking at diversity. First, there's a diversity that comes from free choices in a free society. This is the interplay of the institutions of civil society, the traditional pluralism of American civic life. The second is the diversity project, or diversity as a goal of society. The standard measure for achieving this type of diversity is statistical equality for groups, or group proportionalism. The internal logic of this argument is that uh, in, say, a, a given labor market, if 10% of all potential workers are Asian Americans and 50%, and there are 50% women of all potential workers, uh, then 10% of all job categories, accountants, park rangers, attorneys, electricians, and so on, should be filled proportionally. 10% by Asian Americans and 50% by women. If this does not happen, and in a free society it never does, there's a problem of underrepresentation or a lack of diversity that must be solved. Racial, ethnic, and gender group proportionalism ignores how people actually behave in free societies, or indeed in any society that has ever existed in the history of the world. Professors Donald Horowitz of Duke, Myron Weiner of MIT, Cynthia Enloe of Clark, and Thomas Sowell, Hoover, Stanford, They've spent their careers studying the distribution of racial, ethnic, and gender groups in numerous occupations all across the planet. They have found no evidence to support the assumption that without discrimination, different groups would be equally distributed across all occupations. Everywhere in the world, in every occupation, some ethnic groups are underrepresented and some are overrepresented. Examples of overrepresentation include the Ibus in northern Nigeria and banks and railways, the East Indians as dentists and veterinarians in Malaysia, the Germans in optics and piano manufacturing in Russia and North and South America, Italians in the wine industry in Brazil and California, and Jewish immigrants in the clothing industry in the United States, South America and Australia. One interesting case of overrepresentation, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported in 1995, that more than four-fifths of all donut shops in California were owned by people of Cambodian origin. Ownership of these small businesses are a mobility ladder for Cambodian Americans to enter the middle class. 
It also means that since Cambodian Americans are a relatively small percentage of the population, they would be underrepresented in uh, maybe most other occupations. So how, how could a policy of ethnic, gender, or proportionalism remain consistent with a free society? Well, it can't. The diversity project, diversityism, means coercive diversity. You know, Marcuse has his repressive tolerance. I have my coercive diversity. A diverse society, as the term is currently used, is not compatible with a free society. Professor Donald Horowitz of Duke declared, quote, it remains problematic whether any but the most heavy-handed preferential policies operating in a command economy can actually move a society to such a state. Uh, it's racial, ethnic, and gender proportionalism. Third leg of the triad uh, of identity of politics, critical theory. Critical theory tells us that Western societies are divided between two basic groups, the privileged and the marginalized, the dominant and the subordinate, the oppressor and the oppressed. The marginalized groups include ethnic, racial, ethnic minorities, women, and others. Power is exercised by privileged groups in two ways, through force and, more importantly, through ideological hegemony, which means the supremacy of the worldview uh, that supports the group interests of the dominant groups. The key concept for cr critical theorists is systemic oppression. The system is the problem. Thus, we always hear about systemic or institutional racism and sexism. Let's just look quickly at the work of one particularly influential critical theorist, Catherine McKinnon. McKinnon, a University of Michigan law professor, wrote, quote, The rule of law and the rule of men are one thing indivisible, because state power embodied in law exists through society as male power. Therefore, male power is systemic, coercive, legitimized, and epistemic. It is the regime. Thus, McKinnon declared, that rape is not an isolated event or a moral transgression or an individual interchange gone wrong, but an act of terrorism and torture within a systemic context of group subjugation, like lynching. Law professor McKinnon, well established in the American elite, one might add, her father was a judge on the, um, the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals for over 20 years. McKinnon argues that sexual harassment is not an individual issue, but an issue of of group power exercised by the dominant group over the subordinate group. Subordinate group. Uh, McKinnon's legal theories are obviously in direct conflict with almost any understanding of liberal democratic jurisprudence since she portrays the entire American democratic system as oppressive. <clears throat> Nevertheless, McKinnon's writings have proven to be intellect uh, influential. The United States Supreme Court adopted McKinnon's theories as the basis of inter for interpretation of sexual harassment law in the landmark Meritor Savings Bank v. Vincent, 1986. In 1994, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act. The bill's supporters filled the congressional record with the narrative of critical theory that women are being attacked because they are members of a subordinate group. And the attacks are not individual crimes, motivated by gender, and they are reinforced uh, the disadvantaged status of women as a group. Another leading uh, feminist critical theorist of those days who was influential, 1980s, 1990s, Harvard education professor Carol Gilligan. Professor Gilligan's core argument is that patriarchal social order, androcentric and patriarchal norms, and Western thinking are the major obstacles to educational opportunities for American girls. Again, the American liberal democratic system is the problem. The concept of white privilege goes back for decades. At a freshman orientation session, University of Nebraska in the 90s, 
the Tolos introduced, produced a film funded by the Ford Foundation for training students entitled Skin Deep, which explain, explains the meaning of internalized oppression or false consciousness and white privilege. It's explained in the film that a member of a dominant group who rejects his or her unmerited privilege and becomes an advocate for the subordinate group becomes an ally, a much uh, sought-after position on campuses today. The trinity of, Amer- of identity politics, multiculturalism, diversityism or coercive diversity, and critical theory are saying that the American way of life is oppressive, that American constitutional uh, liberal democracy is illegitimate. If traditional liberalism, small l, is an emphasis on individual rights and individual opportunity, then identity politics is a thorough rejection of liberalism. It is quintessential illiberalism. Now Mike asked, asked us to offer solutions. Hard to do. All I can think of is that we should take identity politics seriously as a direct threat to American constitutional democracy. That means vocally and strenuously opposing its concepts, assumptions, and presuppositions wherever they appear in the political world, in the academy, the schools, foundations, media, business, and culture. When choosing a primary political identity, our American national identity will do just fine. Therefore, we should remember the admonition of George Washington in his first in his farewell address. Washington, quote, Citizens by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discrimination. In 21st century terms, more than any appellation derived from race, ethnicity, gender, class, or partisan affiliation. Thank you very much. Uh, Please pardon my tardiness and my informality. I will resist the temptation to regale you with tales of comic ineptitude from my seven hours at O'Hare today. Instead, I'll stick to my assigned topic, uh, identity politics and what can be done. Try to make three three large points. One, uh, the problems that we're facing have been a long time in the making. Second, This unsurprisingly overlaps somewhat with what John said. There's a kind of affinity, but also a very important difference between the postmodernism that uh, dominated our universities for almost 30 years from the mid-1980s and the identity politics that's dominant today. And third, um, what we can do inside the universities is very limited, uh, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to do. There are initiatives to be taken outside of the universities. First, a remark about uh, norms. For the last, uh, since about the summer of 2015, we have been hearing that uh, norms are under threat in the United States because of the, uh, uh, the utterances and the actions of Donald Trump. Uh, I think the actions and the utterances of Donald Trump should be inspected very carefully. No doubt he has dis- disrupted politics, governance, campaigning. But Trump's uh, 
overturning or undermining of norms, it seems to me, is as is very little compared to what has been taking place in our universities for now going on, actually going on about uh, 80 years. It seems to me the mo uh, identity politics represents the latest, the most recent of these assaults. What is identity politics? I, I add a few propositions to, uh, to what John has already ably said. First, it's the idea that what's most important about you is your group identity. Usually the most relevant groups, it seems, are race, class, and gender. Individual rights come second. Group right, if it, we'll say second. Group rights uh, come first. And group rights are distributed on the basis of uh, the discrimination or oppression that the group to which you belong has, uh, has suffered. Identity politics teaches people to prize their victimhood, to see victimhood as a virtue, to see victimhood uh, actually as, um, as resulting in greater moral status, as meaning that you are deserving of greater political power. Identity politics also teaches that if you belong to uh, a prescribed uh, victim category, then criticism of you, to say, uh, and that uh, not only criticism, but not uh, accepting your opinions amounts to a form of violence against you, an expression of racism, hatred, and bigotry. Uh, even, we're sometimes told, I quote, an inv invalidation of your humanity. As I indicated at the beginning, these ideas, which indeed are in conflict with the basic foundations of liberal democracy, which presuppose individual rights distributed equally to all, these misguided doctrines that are now being promulgated by the university have been, uh, are part and parcel of an anti-liberal and anti-democratic doctrines that have been disseminated for a long time. One could tell a history, I'll be very brief here, but we have documentation going as far back as the early 1950s. William F. Buckley wrote a book about how the curriculum at Yale was used to promulgate progressive ideas, even as the professors of that era protested their own neutrality. Already by the late 1960s, the public interest devotes an entire issue in the fall of 1968 to unrest in the universities. They criticize the apparent willingness of faculty and administration to transform the curriculum into a vehicle for advancing a, pro a progressive agenda. In the 1970s, those undergraduate students go to graduate school in the humanities and the social sciences, and many of them bring the idea that scholarship and teaching should be seen as politics by other means. In the 1980s, late 1980s, Ellen Bloom publishes The Closing of the American Mind. He criticizes what he regards as a kind of soft, thoughtless relativism that has become the orthodoxy of the day on the campuses. He believes that this orthodoxy impairs students' abilities to understand the civilization of which they are a part. He advocates a return to the study of the great books. Twenty years ago, in 1998, 
Many students think that the assault on due process and free speech began in 2015 at Yale in a debate over Halloween costumes. But 20 years ago, Alan Charles Kors and Harvey Silverglade published a book called The Shadow University, which documents the assault on free, an assault on free speech and undermining of due process that had been underway all through the 1990s. Uh, part of it, uh, John, legitimated by uh, the work of Catherine McKinnon, which had become very popular uh, in the law schools. Silverglade and uh, Coors founded an organization called FIRE. They hoped it would be out of business in 10 years through the vigorous defense of free speech and due process on campus. Unfortunately, they find themselves in a growth industry. They are bigger and busier than ever. Now, sometimes postmodernism and identity politics are conflated. They should be distinguished even as they're related. What was postmodernism, which dominated through the 80s, the 90s, and part of the 2000s? Postmodernism taught that truth is a fiction, reality is socially constructed. It proclaimed the death of grand narratives. That meant there was no overarching account of history of Western civilization of America that wasn't, wasn't invented. Of course, um, the professors who promulgated these doctrines, the credulous students, didn't appreciate that it, uh, the incoherence of treating these precepts as absolute and, and incontrovertible. Identity politics, though, which has come to the fore maybe in the last decade, although it's been building, uh, I agree with John, for a long time, is quite different. It replaces postmodernism's dogmatic relativism with what you could call, pardon the redundancy, a dogmatic dogmatism. Identity politics says we know exactly what happened. We know how the past unfolded. It is an endless tale, endless tale of racism, classism, sexism. We know who the oppressors are. We know who the oppressed are. Dissent from our narrative is, again, is an act of violence, an expression of racism and hatred. This doctrine is very common on campuses today. Even though a dogmatic dogmatism has replaced a dogmatic relativism, the threat to liberal democracy, it seems to me, remains the same. Both the postmodernism that dominated from the 80s, identity politics dominant today, regard free speech, due process, the very idea of limited government, which gets in the way of doing good with government, as frauds perpetrated by the strong to subjugate the weak. So what needs to be done? Short answer, restore liberal education. It's not going to happen anytime soon within our universities. Why? Within our universities, most people think, most professors and most administrators think nothing particularly is wrong. They're not interested in self-criticism, let alone external accountability. And very likely, any inherently uh, educationally appropriate uh, practice, such as a core curriculum, these days is likely to be hijacked for illiberal ends within the university. So what do I suggest? 
I suggest more energy, more resources devoted outside of the academy before uh, students arrive at college, homeschooling, charter schools. Uh, I would like to see uh, even more in the way of uh, the programs now being run, uh, often funded by conservative philanthropists or sponsored by conservative foundations to promote the study of liberal education uh, uh, outside the universities. I think this uh, is extremely important, not least because if we want to be able to evaluate, say, our current president or any president, it would be extremely useful to have a sound appreciation of the principles of liberal democracy and American constitutional government, and that's what liberal education ought to be providing us. Thank you. Article by Peter Outside on restoring liberal education. Michael? Thank you, and uh, thank you to Hoover and Heritage uh, for the invitation. Uh, my predecessors have spoken about uh, the intellectual uh, roots of identity politics. I'm going to talk about the demographic uh, factors involved, which uh, make it likely that you're going to have identity politics of the nationalist and populist right, as well as of the multicultural left, for some time to come uh, in the Western world. Uh, some of you may have seen these very interesting uh, computer visualizations of voting in the United States where uh, the infographic imagines that democratic voting areas are uh, islands in an ocean. And you see this sort of archipelago of democratic cities, as big cities and college towns in, in this ocean. The reverse of that, if you've ever seen this, uh, is red America, Republican America, uh, it's this continental landmass with a bunch of lakes. It's kind of like Minnesota, you know, the land of lakes. There's these little lakes where the democratic uh, cities and counties have, have vanished. Uh, you see Michael Barone is here, a great, great uh, analyst of this. You see, uh, uh, he can correct me if I'm mistaken, but you see a convergence between Western Europe and uh, the United States in this pattern where what used to be regional differences. In, in America, it was always the north-south division up until the 70s and 80s was the great division. It's now being replaced by what I think of as the, the cities, the big cities, and exurbia. It's no longer suburbia. It's not the countryside. It always amuses me when I read people, you know, journalists in New York and Washington talking about the cities versus the country as though it were Horace's country mice and the city mice. Uh, it's actually the land of outback steakhouse and subdivisions and highways and so on. It's low-density American Europe and, and high-density America and Europe. Uh, so I, I think we need to grasp this because the answer to the question, are uh, Western societies, not just the United States, but, but Western societies in general, uh, are they mosaics or melting pots? The correct answer is yes. Yes, it depends on which of these zones you were in. Uh, so let's begin with the cities. In the United States, 12.5% of the population is foreign-born. In Los Angeles, it's 39.7%. In New York City, it's 37%. Uh, in the five biggest cities in the United States, 
48% speak a language other than English at home. That's 59% of the inhabitants of Los Angeles, a, a majority. In California, Texas, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, and Florida, 44% of public school students speak a language other than English at home. And those uh, non-English speakers are divided among various populations. The largest is Latino, but increasingly there are various Asian American uh, immigrant groups. Uh, so if that that is half of America, it's almost half of America in population terms, that is a deeply multicultural society. And this is not new. A hundred years ago in Boston and in New York uh, and the other big industrial cities with the European immigrants, you had little Italy and little Germany and little Poland. And don't let anybody tell you there was no identity politics before you had uh, left-wing intellectuals, right? Uh, you know, people voted their ethnic block. There was ethnic block voting. And if you have a city that's made up largely of foreign diasporas of, of the immigrants and their first-generation children, because a lot of it's chain migration, you get whole villages and regions, transport themselves to the city. And now it's also Vienna and London and Paris. It's not just, you know, Western Hemisphere cities anymore. You're going to have a kind of brokered multicultural patronage politics, right? Where uh, the leaders of these immigrant subcultures, many of, who, of the voters don't speak the language, maybe German and Austrian, maybe, you know, English and Britain. They're going to take their cues from their ethnic leaders uh, and vote for this party or that party. So, so I think that's just a, there's a structural fact there which is going to uh, d defeat efforts to change university curricula and you know, public uh, uh, policy and so on. Uh, it's just the nature of things. If these really were city-states, you know, if, if San Francisco did secede from the United States, and I have San Francisco friends who want to, uh, then it would be a multinational city-state. It would be like Singapore with Malays and Chinese and, and Indians. That's just baked into it. Okay, so let's look at exurbia. Let's look at this, this realm in Britain outside of London, right? In uh, France outside of the Paris metro area and other big metros. In the United States, between the big cities and the college towns. It's not the case that uh, this is just an ancient non-varying white tribe by any means. It's becoming more and more diverse over time as uh, the descendants, and sometimes immigrants themselves, or the descendants of immigrants move, assimilate. Uh, we, we know from studies of uh, ethnic attrition from uh, Stephen Trejo of the University of Texas and, and Richard Alba that uh, Latinos assimilate at more or less the same rate that the Germans and the Irish and the Italians did in the past. And by the fourth generation, people who have one Mexican grandparent tend not to say they're Latino in the same way that people who have one German grandparent don't say they're German-Americans anymore. Uh, so the melting pot, uh, whatever, it, whatever you think of it as an ideal, it is a reality in working-class uh, dominated suburb, like Serbia, right? In, in small towns and rural areas. Uh, so I, the thought I want to leave you with today is that all ideologies, all ideas have an address. They have a constituency. They have a popular base. Uh, if, uh, and, and in the case of uh, multiculturalism, and particularly this hard-edge multiculturalism, uh, 
I don't believe that unless these categories, which are sort of artificial, I mean, just a brief digression, uh, it was the Office of Management and Budget in 1977 that invented the five race system we have, where their assignment was to come up with a number of official races between three and ten. There was just too much stuff that Congress is passing exemptions for and set-asides. That's where we get non-Hispanic white, Asian and Pacific Islander. It was kind of an absurd category. I found out last night researching this that it was in 1909 that Congress hastily passed a law saying that Jews and Armenians are white for purposes of white supremacy in those days. Syrians and uh, Arabs were not, and neither were South Asian Indians. They could not marry white people and so on. So, uh, uh, but, the, but absent some social reality, and in this case, it's immigration-driven real diversity in, in these big cities on both sides of the Atlantic, I think over time, yes, there would be incentive to identify yourself as a member of this category, that category, depending on one of your four grandparents. But, but I think over time, uh, the melting pot is working. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, at the, at the, so why am I pessimistic about that happening? Uh, because of uh, demography. Again, the native fertility rate uh, in Western societies is below replacement. So, and I'm in favor of it. I, we need to have replacement immigration of some kind uh, in order to have prevent the population from just going into kind of a death spiral. The East Asian societies have avoided having significant immigration to date with not terrible uh, impacts. But I think when your, your birth rate is 1.4% or 1.7%, uh, and it takes 2.1% to maintain the population, and you're losing a quarter or a half of your population every generation. At some point, there's a crisis there. Uh, I don't see the birth rates in the uh, developed countries rising rapidly, so I think there will be continued uh, pressure, which will succeed, uh, for migration. Uh, so, you know, then, but what that does is it, cr it constantly replenishes the demographic political base for multiculturalism, which is a social reality, in cities that are gateways, right, uh, uh, for immigration. So even if you got rid of all of the the, the particular ideologies and, and you know the, uh, the studies programs and so on, uh, you're still going to have these quite different communities in these big cities, and you're going to have a kind of brokered politics in block voting. And we had this a hundred years ago uh, in the United States. Then it was European immigrant groups. Uh, and we're seeing the same thing now on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and so in just one, one final thought, uh, there's identity politics of the majority as well. Uh, I was two years old when uh, my aunt was uh, being arrested with her African-American friends in Austin, Texas, uh, for dining together in Woolworths. Uh, I was uh, uh, four years old. Uh, no, I was three years old when it became legal uh, for African-Americans to vote in my part of the country. Uh, I was five years old when African-Americans were allowed to marry white people. Uh, and it was in 1965 that uh, our racist, white supremacist uh, immigration system, which went back to the founding fathers, who said in 1789, only free white persons can become naturalized citizens of the United States, 
was in 1965 when I was a toddler that we got rid of this. So I, ju I just urge you to bear this in mind. We are half a century, it's less time than I've been alive, away from American identity politics being white Christian identity politics reinforced by law. Uh, and it didn't just vanish overnight in uh, 1965. So, you know, one can reject, you know, some of the, the more hard-edged versions of, of multiculturalism. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't think we should uh, uh, simply say that uh, it's easy to create a post-white supremacist identity uh, without making some changes in, in the way we think about in America, in which up until I was a little kid, to be an American was to be a white Christian, if not a white Protestant. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. A lot to think of. So far, every speaker has stayed within 10 minutes, which is great. That also, a lot of fear to think about. Heather? Thank you so much. And again, I also want to express my extreme gratitude to be on this panel and for Heritage and Hoover to invited me. Thank you so much. I'm going to start with the solution, uh, which is that we need to take on the oppression narrative. Unless this idea is rebutted that every difference in American society today is the result, by definition, of discrimination, and that, as Ta-Nehisi Coates says, it's the very essence of, of America to destroy the black body, there is going to be no end uh, to identity politics. It is that core idea that is driving this. It is completely forbidden to talk about differences in skills, interests, aptitudes, and cultures. Instead, the only allowable explanation to, to understand the lack of proportionality is that John talked about in, in different uh, occupations. The only allowable explanation is discrimination. So those of us who are worried about the consequences of these identity politics have to screw up the courage to start talking about another explanation for disparities, which is behavioral differences and cultural differences and different interests and aptitudes. Now, where do we start? Well, the best place to start is the American campus because there is no place that is more insane, that is more in the grips of a mass hysteria than the college campus. There is a ecstatic search for martyrdom and for victimhood uh, that has become an absolutely ruthless crawl up the totem pole of, of victim beatitude. Currently, the top victim dog is the trans identity, but believe me, uh, that's not going to last long, and anybody who can guess the next category will be the farthest thinker among us. But believe me, uh, it's coming. So get, put your thinking caps on now. Uh, students actually believe, get this, that to be on an American campus today is to be the subject of relenting threat, lethal threat to their existence. This, of course, if you are in 
one of the metastasizing categories of beatific victimhood. Uh, primarily, of course, females, students of color, and the 116 now gender categories. Uh, and that they are literally at risk of their lives. And that, and that circumambient racism is so great that they should be exempt from such ordinary academic expectations as going to class. Minority students at Brown occupied the president's office and complained that they were still expected to go to class because they were working so hard at, quote, staying alive at Brown. Now, does a college president ever say, grow up? Learn the difference between a real problem and an f- imaginary problem. Microaggressions are imaginary problems. No, instead, of course, as we know, starting with the 1960s, presidents capitulate, kowtow, and grovel. And, of course, the growing diversity bureaucracy uh, encourages this. There is a, a mutual codependency between self-engrossed delusional students who act out little psychodramas of oppression before an appreciative audience of deanlets and vice chancellors of, of equity, diversity, and inclusion who use the student breakdown uh, to expand their dominion. Nevertheless, it is something that can be taken on because it is empirically provable that campuses, at least American campuses, we can prove are not places of discrimination. There is not a single faculty hiring search that isn't one desperate effort to find qualified females and underrepresented minorities who have not already been snapped up by better endowed campuses. There is not a single school or professional school in the country that is not employing vast and extraordinarily destructive racial preferences to admit uh, some critical mass of underrepresented minorities, putting those students at an extraordinary competitive disadvantage. That disadvantage, which has been called mismatch by Richard Sander and, and Stuart Taylor, a book that should be everybody's uh, required reading, is also what is driving the delusion uh, because students who are artificially catapulted into an academic environment for which they're not prepared, and this is not limited to race, it would apply to gender. If I was admitted to MIT with a 650 on my math SAT and all my peers who'd been admitted on merit rather than gonads had 800s on their math SAT, I would flounder. I would struggle. I would not be able to keep up in freshman calculus. And I would have two options. I could say I was admitted to a school for which I was not academically prepared Or I could say I live in a patriarchal rape culture environment that is making me struggle and and causing me emotional trauma. And guess which route most students choose? They choose the victimology route. Uh, So racial preferences is another major driver of identity politics. And unless we start admitting students based on academic merit, Nobody's saying minority students should not go to college. 
they should simply go to a college for which they're academically prepared and they will succeed. We will get more STEM graduates uh, because right now what happens is minority students leave STEM majors at an enormously high rate, again, because they're put into schools unfairly for which they're not qualified. So we can take on the victim ideology in college campuses because it is so demonstrably false. The interesting test case right now is where the Asian identity goes. It's a very perverse thing. You know, uh, there's the narrative out there that we saw with the Sarah Jong episode at the New York Times, this Asian who was hired to run the, be on the editorial board pages, uh, who had a whole history of tweets about uh, that were anti-white. Well, people got upset about this, whereas Sarah Jong was just simply a boring product of the American Academy. I mean, anybody who was surprised by Sarah Jong has not been paying attention. But there is a divide in Asians now between uh, those who support meritocracy and colorblindness. We see them in the Asians that are supporting the lawsuits against Harvard, uh, possibly uh, other places, Richard Sanders bring others, and that understand that New York City, which is trying to uh, close down its merit-based high competitive high schools uh, and and impose racial quotas on those schools. There's a long, large Chinese contingent that's trying to fight that. Nevertheless, you can go to any American campus today and find Asian students choosing to identify as students of color rather than, say, whites. And the irony there is that the administration doesn't regard Asians as people of color. It reads them as whites because it keeps an artificially low threshold on the admission of Asians because it doesn't get them the diversity points. The fact that a fair amount of Asians choose to embrace the oppositional uh, person of color mindset shows how powerful and attractive identity politics is to the elites. It is the way you gain status. So just quickly, um, I just want to stress the urgency of this battle. It is obviously coming very fast into the corporate world. People who, like Michael Barone, who had a very uh, persuasive thesis that hard America was going to be the final line where the, the soft America was going to end and people were going to have to face reality and we were going to return to meritocracy, a plausible thesis, but I think one, sadly, that is not necessarily, at this moment at least, being borne out. When you have Google firing computer engineers, not because they were uh, incompetent, uh, James Damore, but because he dared to question the feminist orthodoxy that reigns not just at Google, but at every tech company that says that the, again, this is the key idea. The only allowable explanation for the lack of gender parity at Google and Facebook and YouTube and Microsoft, the only allowable explanation is implicit bias and sexism. We are not allowed to say 
that males and females have different career aptitudes and preferences, and we are certainly not allowed to say what Larry Summers got fired from Harvard for saying, which is that at the tail end of high-end math ability, the 0.01% of cutting-edge math skills mails out number females 2.5 to 1. So the corporate world is being transformed. The STEM fields are under enormous pressure to hire by gender and to a lesser extent by race. Gender is the big story there. Uh, We're seeing it in the political realm with the Gender Studies 101 coming to the Supreme Court hearings with the Believe Survivors mantra used against Brett Kavanaugh, the whole due process problems that we've been hearing about. Um, so this is something we need to talk about right now. I would say the the main driver is race, despite the gender is, you know, women are sort of a, a fast second place, but the main driver of all of this is the lingering racial disparities, and we both need to close them and be honest about what's driving them. I would say family breakdown is the biggest driver and and other behavioral disparities in culture, those need to be closed because if not, the oppression narrative is going to be with us to our enormous uh, misfortune. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now batting cleanup is Andrew Sullivan. Thank you very much, Heather. I wish you would be able to express how you really feel. <laughs> no, it's really, it's really helpful. It's, it's refreshing. Um, uh, when, you're, when you are embedded in essentially liberal institutions, whether you're embedded in a university, you're not in a think tank, or if you're embedded in liberal media or in mainstream media at this point, just to be in a room where someone says those things is kind of like refreshing. Uh, I just want to add a few points to what's been said, which all of which is, uh, has been excellent and superb in outlining the general threat to liberal democracy, a, a, a fundamental threat to liberal democracy and liberalism in general from this ideology. Um, and that is to ask why, because like Peter, I remember too uh, that this happened before. We went through a nightmare like this in the 90s. Uh, and, but it's different now. And I, I'm interested in why it's different now. And back then, it was an interesting uh, way to debate what's going on in the world. In other words, some of this stuff was immediately challenged, debated, talked through, even though the campuses, generally speaking, uh, supported it, it hadn't completely taken over all teaching of the humanities the way it currently has. So what has rendered this, first of all, so much more intense now? And secondly, why has an entire generation of the elite succumbed to it? Uh, It is staggering how people under the age of 30 buy all of this have never even regarded it as questionable, uh, that it's become uh, completely routine to believe these things. And I would, I would point out a couple of things. The first is the internet. 
we have, uh, and also parenting, we have a new generation of kids who were never allowed to risk anything, who were monitored their entire lives, who were told that safety was the most important thing in their lives, and who were consumed with screens and lacking social interaction and negotiating interpersonal conflict, as one does in real life. They're a very, very fragile generation. And when they showed up after their helicopter parenting, and usually quite affluent, to college, their main requirement was to be safe. Uh, and anything that made them feel unsafe uh, was something that they responded to very negatively, something their parents would never expose them to. Why? So there was that psychological response, as well as a, 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 social, a lack of social uh, socialization as human beings. Secondly, social media uh, does two things. One, it prioritizes the quick retort uh, to a quick blurted out half thought. Uh, it is so easy, so much easier to say, well, you're a white man. I don't have to deal with the actual details of the argument. That you, you argue the identity, not the argument. And that feels perfectly great. And if you have this overarching ideology that allows you to say, see, I rebutted it, you can talk now. Your arguments make no sense because of your race and your gender or whatever. Secondly, uh, there's an element of pleasure, almost moral pleasure, in calling out evil when you see it, especially when you do it to another individual. And this call-out culture, this moral shaming, is also deep within human nature, of course. But online interaction disinhibited it, allowed us increasingly to respond to public debate in terms entirely of identity rather than ideas. I can honestly say, I, don't, I try not to look at what people say about me on Twitter, but almost every single argument is about whether I'm white, whether I'm male, whether I am LGBTQ, RSTU, VW, XYZ, uh, or not. Uh, don't get me started on LGBT. Um, and also, of course, this social media also facilitates your willingness and very human idea not just to shame others, but to praise yourself, what we call virtue signaling. And this allows you. And it basically, it's all essentially feeding off the moral capital of the civil rights movement, feeding off the moral capital that argued that every group should have equal access to conflate that with if there is not absolute equality of outcome, therefore there is evil at present in the system. The second thing that's new and different is that this is far, far beyond campus. This is now integral to most blue state corporate settings. In other words, what is actually a rather esoteric uh, concept out of uh, one could say, you know, the postmodernists. Uh, it is now used ubiquitously and understood as concepts are fundamentally understood within the hiring and firing and advancement prospects and policies of most big companies. 
It is not in any way controversial not to have actual quota targets for particular representations in your company. In fact, it is far more outrageous if you don't have those things. You can go to the New York Times and see how successful they've been at recruiting various different diversity groups on the page they give you to look at. Uh, so this has entered corporate culture in a way that it didn't in the 90s. And thirdly, it has completely taken over the media. The, the liberal media surrendered almost immediately to leftist media. And there are almost no mainstream publications or in which in the opinion realm, I'm not talking about news necessarily, but in the opinion realm, in which dissent from this is really allowed. The only people actually dissenting from it are people my generation or above who have already been able to establish themselves outside of the current media structures. And we're not, we're hanging on by our fingernails. Because when you write something every day, you know that it could be the last line you write. You you used to be an editor of a magazine and know that you could publish something and maybe it'd be highly controversial, people would hate it. And then you get a lot of criticism and then you, I'm talking from experience, of course. Uh, but you would hang in the job and publish something that people like the next week. Now, boom, gone. Uh, so that's another thing that has fed this more generally into the culture, it's seeping into general culture, not just campus culture. The third other reason for identity policy is this pernicious variety to arrive is contemporary conservatism. It is the adoption by the Republican Party of white identity politics and the elevation of this, this horrible, hideous, racist human being to the presidency and supported by such a large number, in fact, the entirety of the Republican Party bar a handful of people. When your president is actively and clearly demonstrating hatred and hostility towards members of ethnic minority groups, uh, it is not surprising that that is then given, gives an excuse to everybody on the far left to say, look, see, everything we always said about conservatives is true. It's all just a veneer for this white nationalism. And when the President of the United States cannot disavow support from the far right, and when he engages in unbelievable, constant race baiting, and when the Republican Party embraces it, it means that all of us on the outside who are trying to defend liberal values have that thrown in our faces. You can't criticize identity politics on the left without seeing how it has been emboldened, legitimized, and empowered by the adoption of identity politics on the right. Uh, how do we solve it? Very quickly. Two, three, three, three ideas. One is simply confront it daily, all the time. Do not be intimidated. They want to intimidate you. I'm intimidated every day. I write a column in New York Magazine, which I know, because I've lived the last two years, renders myself, my own employment, extremely precarious. The things people are not writing right now, things people who are afraid to say in media, are legion. Second, push identity even further. I like the idea of intersectionality. Yes, we're all a bunch of different identities competing. But let's keep adding on the identities. I'm gay, okay, I'm British. 
I'm also American. I grew up in a, a small town. I live in a big city. Uh, I'm a Catholic. Uh, I like watching South Park. There are all parts of my identity that I could add to this picture until it is fully complex. And when you do that for every single person, you find that everybody's intersectionality is unique. And you end up with individualism. Secondly, thirdly, and lastly, we need to have a positive vision of diversity. It is really hard in this kind of dynamic to respond and to ask the question, to respond to the question about inequality by saying, well, you're not really oppressed. I mean, that's what Heather was really saying. The difficulty is, how do you say that to a person of color who says, well, yes, I am? And we, I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm just saying that <laughs> that's a dilemma. My view is you have to celebrate the success of minority groups, to champion members of minority groups and women who are succeeding and flourishing in America, to retell the story of progress of the different identity groups in America, to see how, for example, in my own experience, in terms of the question of homosexuality, how this country is incredibly open to listen fairly to arguments made sensibly and not an intolerant country. And instead of being put in that position constantly defensively, we should talk about the successes that has occurred without this stuff. In fact, sometimes I wonder whether this stuff is in fact a function of having succeeded. Uh, because you're terrified you're going to lose the struggle that you always live with, and you're going to have nothing to do with your life. No real moral cause to champion. It seems weird to me that we are in a most intense period of feminism and of the notion of patriarchy at a time when women are now 54% of college graduates, in which women are kicking ass all over the society, in culture, in economics, in politics, in law, and everywhere. Instead of celebrating that... We're talking about the constant oppression of the patriarchy. We can turn it around. We can be positive, not negative. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks all of you. I, uh, I promise you uh, that I was going to deliver diversity. I think I have. The real diversity that counts, diversity of views. Um, I'm going to... Uh, how many... We have like 20, 25 minutes, so 20 minutes really for questions. How many people want to ask a question? Can you raise your hands so I can get a sense? Uh, so I want to go straight to, I wanna, Mike and I have agreed to forego the, the chair and all that and, and go straight to you, unless people, members of the panel want to quibble with one another over anything. Anybody want to say anything? Raise your hands. I would just, um, I agree with most of what Andrew said, but in particular, I don't think that the psychological snowflake overparenting explanation, which is one that's been put forward also by Jonathan Hayden Lukianoff, who I respect enormously and who are doing incredible work on campuses, but I, I don't, and that is the thesis of their book, I don't think that's fully accurate for several reasons. As John pointed out, um, the rise of of identity politics and, and victim identity and, and assaults on due process began in the 90s, if not before that, 80s. But also, it, it doesn't match up demographically. Uh, the brothers of maudlin, self-pitying female co-eds, co-eds have the same parents and yet white males overall are not 
of demanding their own unique safe spaces. Now, they may find through the magic of intersectionality some other way to work, claw their way out of the oppressor category into the oppressed, which is where everybody wants to be. But generally, uh, they've been helicopter parented and, and they're not demanding safe spaces. And, and also, uh, the underrepresented minorities, uh, I think sociological work shows that the problem there is not overparenting uh, for a lot of uh, black and Hispanic kids. Now, obviously, universities are trying to select the most affluent. They don't give a damn about any kind of socioeconomic uh, real disparities or preferences for, for that. But, but nevertheless, I think of the issue as less a psychological problem of the overparented child and more an ideological problem, which is the narrative that America is endemically oppressive and racist. Thank you, Heather. Uh, Andrew, you want to answer that very quickly? Uh, yes, it's just that my point was simply that was one factor intensifying what already existed. It didn't create it. It, okay. it just, I, for some people, it made the, the essential question of safety, from emotional safety, uh, part of their core needs. Mm -hmm. That's all. Peter? Just one part. Uh, one quick observation about uh, Michael Lynn's excellent point about the the, the social reality that gives rise to uh, multiculturalism and political society. There still seems to me a kind of uh, asymmetry between the multicultural reality that Michael described and what we're seeing uh, in the universities and several panelists described it in the corporate culture today. And that is uh, ethnic politics seems to me, it seems to me is not uh, intrinsically opposed to the principles of liberal democracy. It's a form of uh, interest group politics, which is not only not opposed, but um, elaborated, in a sense, in Federalist Number 10, whereas the kind of identity politics described by Andrew, by Heather, by John, uh, and myself, actually um, does describe an ideology that is uh, affirmatively opposed to the principles of liberal democracy as we've known them. Thank you. Can I answer okay. briefly? Yes. Okay. And then we'll get to get to the questions. I, I don't disagree with that. I would push back. I think there is an ideology uh, among the uh, elite, the native-born white elite ah. in Europe and the U.S., and it identifies liberal democracy. They think they're liberal Democrats with counter-majoritarianism. And this goes back to the 50s and Hofstetter and, and all of this. As Andrew correctly pointed out, the founding mythology of the post-1945 West, Europe and America, in my view, is two things. It's the Holocaust and it's uh, uh, American racism, and also Australian and British and, and Australian. So, so there's been this 50 years in which the working class in particular, but the majorities in the United States, Australia, Canada, Britain, France, Germany, are seen as the slumbering proto-fascist mass uh, and so every defense of liberal democracy has been defending minorities against these people who could become Nazis at any minute. So I think in the view of the, these mainstream elites, they really believe, right, that at any moment, you know, these blue-collar workers are going to turn into stormtroopers, right, and round everybody up. And so this is a sincere belief, I think, in the college-educated class. And 
so in a way, they think they have to defend liberal democracy against democracy, against majoritarianism. It's counter-majoritarian. Yeah. Tom Fonson yeah, just one quick point. Uh, I think the ethnic politics of the early 20th century was, I think of LaGuardia. It was celebratory. These were not people who were uh, had, a, had a beef with America. They were celebrating America. Okay, so now uh, many of you have come. Uh, Michael, you have a... Over here? Please uh, identify yourselves. Uh, and don't, please ask a very brief question. Obviously, many people want to ask questions and... Don't hey, I'm, I'm Hans von with the Heritage Foundation. I, this is a question for any of you, but maybe to Heather, since you were talking about the universities. One, one of the arguments I just don't see made, and I wonder whether you agree with this, is that the very argument of diversity, which these administrators use to justify what they're doing, isn't it the worst form of racism? Because what they're saying is, is that your viewpoint your ideas, your opinions depends on your race. And isn't that like the worst kind of race? I just don't see that argument made very often. Right. It's, well, you know who makes it is the uh, beneficiaries of preferences. There's a frequent complaint uh, on college campuses that one hears from black students, which is that during the discussion of you know, the civil rights era, everybody turns and looks at us for our opinion. Uh, and, you know, this is insulting. Rightly so, it is. And yet, you don't get to have it both ways. You know, the argument for why you're here is because we assume because you are black, you have a predictably different view of these matters than anybody in a different uh, racial group. So it is absolutely uh, typecasting. Sadly, though, uh, the response on the part of people who feel, uh, you know, a little bit uh, offended by, by being typecast as, you know, give us your view, they don't then say treat us as individuals. The students that are complaining about that are on the same, same token, uh, you know, demanding that the, the preference regime continues. But, but, you know, by now it's tried to say, and many conservatives have said it, there are many different ways to conceptualize diversity than race and gender or gonads and melon, which I agree is the most un- least interesting part of somebody. And and yes, intersectionality, whatever happened to, the, I think John mentioned the class, put class into the trilogy of identity. That's really just lip service. You know, they don't really care about class. We used to categorize people based on you know, capital and and uh, workers and the proletariat. That that's all to the wayside now. It's all it's the it's the fun of the navel gazing, uh, narcissistic division of the multiple gender identities uh, that that gets all the attention. But there's so many other ways to think about the self, which is what one loves, what one's passions are, whether it's music or art or chess, uh, and 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 gender and race are, are utterly uh, the the least the least important aspects of somebody's self, in my view. Okay. Uh, next, this lady right here, and then we'll go in the back. Right here, in the, the uh, yellow sweater. Thank you very much. I'm Darlene Jackson, Esquire. Um, also, um, acting chairwoman of the National Black Republican Council, which is an auxiliary of the RNC, and also 
uh, CEO and founder of OPAD Strategies. Um, well, I want to I want to touch on Mr. Uh, Lin's comment about. Can you speak up a little bit? Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Mr. Lin's comment about fertility. Also, um, there was also a discussion about the intellectual part of the identity politics. I want to say that the transformation of academics. Put, put up the microphone. I'm sorry. Yeah. The transformation of academics, media, and Hollywood, which include music and theater, all led to this uh, umbrella, what Jesse Jackson called back in the 80s, the Rainbow Coalition, identity politics. But the key determining factor of all that is fertility. What is fertility? Fertility is this. If I got three sons, I put one in New York, one in Atlanta, and one in L.A. I walk away for 30 days, and each one of those sons happened to impregnate a woman a day. In nine months, I got 90 grandkids in the oven. If I got three girls, same thing, New York, L.A., Atlanta. 30 days later, I might get one. The fertility is in the boys. Go to Africa, you see all those boys. Go to China, you see all the girls. It was law back in China in the 1980s that had a stop on... on uh, Do you have a question? I'm sorry. My question is that, would you agree with me that if you look into the real key nucleus of fertility, you're gonna, it's going to explain everything about identity politics? Thank you. Would you agree? Michael, you want to take that? or? <laughs> well, the only point I was making uh, was just the broader and somewhat obvious one, that is, uh, if you want to have constant population in industrialized societies uh, and you, your natives don't replace themselves, then you're going to have at least replacement immigration. And I just wanted to make the point that that, that the larger the, the replacement population, even in the absence of ideological multiculturalism, uh, there are going to be conflicts and there's going to be backlash and, and you know, there's going to be some kind of ethnic politics and it can be ce celebratory. But remember, the last episode of uh, ethnic politics we had uh, led to the 1924 Immigration Restriction Acts that shut down immigration for half a century in the United States because the backlash was so severe. So, so I just think a lot of the conflict even in particularly Western European societies, where unlike the United States, they were not always multiracial, they were not always multiethnic, there wasn't a history of a caste system or anything like that. Uh, it's just there's going to be tensions, and I think that's I mean, kind the, of the, in. It's, it, it's a staggering fact, to me at least, that um, London now has a... 37% of London's population wasn't born in Britain. So it'll soon be almost half the capital will have no one who was born in the United Kingdom. Uh, that is, and that's in one, two, two generations. Uh, so I think, but it's exactly at these demographic pressure points that the importance to stick to liberal individualism becomes, it seems to me, ever more important because the possibility of group conflict, real, that American politics becoming essentially a race war, uh, is is realer now, especially when people have in their head this abstract concept of a majority white com country becoming majority non-white. You're at a, you're at a moment exactly when these things that are de buried deep in us come to the surface, and it's at that moment that I think it's vital to push back against it. It's 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 at its most dangerous right now, and the only solution is to treat people individually. But I think it's also just to add one tiny point. I think it's also important 
not for, for people not to acknowledge that racism does exist. I think it's important not to construct an alternative of America in which everybody lives without any of these encumbrances or difficulties at all. I think that's foolish and wrong and, and comes off as, as condescending and contemptuous. But the answer is, is, is the prohibition of individual discrimination on the basis of these, of these characteristics, not... In other words, conservatives have a response to this, too. Uh, but, but, but positing as if none of this comes, has any validity whatsoever, that prejudice doesn't exist, is, is, is just not believable and is not credible and isn't working with people uh, and isn't dealing with reality. Thank you. Let me go back to the audience. Uh, right there in the back. Right there, that gentleman Which right there. One of them? Oh, first him and then you. I promise him. Okay. Josh Mitchell, generally at Georgetown, but here at Heritage for the Year. I look around the room and I see a number of us are old enough to remember a time when we did not use the term identity. This is something relatively recent. Uh, we used to say, I'm an American or I'm a man, and now we say, my identity is American and my identity is, is male. Um, so it seems to me that there are a couple things going on here. <clears throat> One, we're using identity as synonymous with kind. And so the reference to the 20th century ethnic groups, inner city ethnic groups, um, that's, that's kind. <clears throat> and we use identity synonymously with kind, but it seems to me there's something else going on here. And unless we get to this something else, we're just not going to get to the heart of the matter. Identity is different than kind. Uh, identity is a relationship of transgression and, and innocence. And it seems to me if we don't get to that piece of identity, we're going to completely miss what's going on. Identity politics is a specification of a relationship between an innocent victim and a transgressor. And the real question is how is it that that really religious idea has emerged into our culture? And one, one question I would pose to you is the following. Might it be the collapse of the mainline Protestant churches? Uh, in which one had a vernacular of sin and transgression and a way to resolve it. And Martin Luther King did the same thing with, in his civil rights speeches. Uh, once, once that collapses, then is it the case that all this moves into the domain of politics and you've got transgression and innocence, but no way to atone for it? And that's the real crisis of identity politics. That's is there the somebody you'd like to answer that question uh, specifically? Anyone on the panel? Anyone like to take this? I, I think that's a brilliant description of where we are, um, and uh, uh, I mean, that's really what I have to say. The, the question is um, kind and identity. The, the question deeper down is really also about nature. To what extent, for example, is being a man, I think the other thing that identity suggests is choice. And in fact, what people want to believe is greater and greater liberty for themselves, greater and greater individual autonomy. And that, as Peter would know even better, is really about wanting to be free from nature itself, uh, which is a very Nietzschean uh, uh, idea about how the last men will behave. And we are behaving that way, in which, in which everything, every aspect of being human is now a choice, a piece of clothing you put on. And most radically, of course, now with actual sex and gender, in which in which something becomes something completely other. But I also agree with the religious uh, aspect here. I do think that once the Christianity was a critical force, I mean, first of all, it's critical behind liberalism itself, but it's also a critical uh, move in Western civilization towards an understanding that we are neither male nor female, neither Greek nor Jew, but one, and that everyone is the same and equal under God. Now, when you take Christianity out of a culture entirely, 
where does those, where do the individual dignity come in? Instead, you start to see group, group identities and group dignity coming in. And so I think it is part of the decline of Christianity as properly understood, or rather the distortion, the, the, the collapse of Christianity, especially since so much of white evangelical politics now is really about identity politics and not about religion. So we're going to have two questions quickly because, uh, and then we'll go to go to the foyer, and you happy you'll be able to approach the speakers, ma'am, right there, quickly. Very quickly, um, I understand what it is to be told that I should feel like I'm a victim, and I am not a victim. I choose to be a victor and to have an amazing life. Now that said, I am wrestling with two things that I would love to get your feedback on. This this idea of are you really oppressed or are you just frustrated because what has been an equal opportunity has not resulted in an equal outcome? And any of you that want to tackle that, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And then this idea that simply because if the playing field is really level, I mean, forget doors that I can't reach and things like that, but if, if the playing field is really level as it was for me educationally because my parents saw to it and in the workplace because I have worked my backside off to make it happen, and the outcome is not equal, is that because I am oppressed? Or is that because simply, um, words that we aren't supposed to say, let's see, excrement occurs? <laughs> okay, uh, can you give your name? Uh, so oh, I'm sorry, I'm Melissa Ortiz, and until very recently I was a political appointee of the Trump administration. I am now um, simply an American who loves a good argument. Anybody, John Fonta here, wants to take quickly, that Quickly, I have... I, uh, there will never be equal outcomes unless uh, in a free society. It would have to be, as I quoted in my talk, uh, Professor Horowitz there at Duke University, that uh, it's not possible in a free society to have exact equal outcomes for every racial, gender, and ethnic group. That's not the way the world has worked. It's not the way the world's ever worked. All right, so um, Michael Barone has been name-checked twice, and I'm going to do it three <laughs> times, and uh, we're going to close out with him, and then we'll move to the floor. Well, Heather was nice enough to say that my 2004 book, Hard America, It's Soft America, was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, In a good way. I though. think that you made a strong case. Right. Um, and, and Michael Lynn pointed out that we've had you know, racial identity politics in the past, although we didn't like to call it that. Uh, you know, Fiorello LaGuardia did not say, you should vote for me because I'm an Italian Jewish um, Protestant, Protestant, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so forth, and and everything, but uh, nonetheless was able to and, and ran in for Congress as a both Republican and a Socialist. <laughs> um, the um, the thought struck me as I was listening to all of you and making excellent points was that uh, in some ways our answer is to learn our history better. Uh, when people on campus say that they are at risk of death, what the hell were Southern black people that tried to register for vote in 1940s and 1950s at risk of? They really were at risk of their lives and took a risk of their lives. When we, and that the other thought I had is that we we don't understand this distinction. We get a lot of our racial quotas, our insistence on outcomes. Um, being equal within each identifiable group, even when like LaGuardia and uh, some of the uh, initials after LGP that Andrew was reeling off has um, <clears throat> become rather small, um, that um, those came from court decisions and law schools 
uh, Griggs and Green v. New Kent Board, when they were, the courts were in a situation where um, Southern whites were oppressing black people with the threat of violence in the background. Um, and the courts just said, okay, we're going to set down a quota here because that's the only way to actually ensure that we'll get real progress. We haven't needed to do that really in the last 40 years to get equal treatment of people. But we need to learn that that history happened and that it was unique and it's not now. I invite comments. I don't think we can do better than that. We're going to close out. Unless some, uh, somebody wants to comment on Michael, Michael well, Burr, I would just, just said, say we'll, briefly, I, I completely agree. We've lost the language of stoicism. We've lost the ability or the willingness to say, just shrug it off, bear up, you know, be brave. If you, if you face an impediment, again, I disagree with Andrew. I would say at least on an American college campus, there is not discrimination. I would say there is, that is virtually a bigotry-free environment. Uh, and I'm not even going to play the conservative victim card because even conservatives are not truly victims there. But, <laughs> but we're, we've lost the ability to say, even if you are discriminated against, fight it. You can, you can transcend it by studying, by, you know, if you think somebody's committed a racial microaggression against you, whoop his ass in your chemistry exam, you know, uh, and, and, and be, be brave and be courageous and overcome things. We somehow feel inhibited from saying that, but that is exactly what the civil rights heroes of our past did. Right, exactly. Anybody else want to say anything? Please join me in thanking our panelists.